From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals. With Richard Campbell, this is Brandon Wen announcing show number 363, Resiliency with guest Michael Nygaard. Recorded Monday, March 31st, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Plop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Uh, my guest today is Michael Nygaard. Michael is an author, writing and co-authoring several books, including Release It, Beautiful Architecture, 97 Things Software Architects Should Know, and the Java Developer's Reference. He always strives to raise the bar and ease pain for developers. And he's an expert in highly available, highly scalable commerce systems. Michael's been a professional programmer and architect for over 15 years, and in that time, he's delivered systems to the U.S. government, military, banking, finance, agriculture, and retail industries. And while I have read your stuff, sir, uh, we met for the first time just a month or so ago in London at QCon. Yes, we're part of that curious fraternity of people who never meet in their home cities, yeah. but only in, you know, random locations around the globe. <laughs> exactly. I think we were in, we were in line for breakfast and just decided to sit together. And turns out we were even speaking on the same track. Yeah, that was serendipity for sure. Mm-hmm. No question, and very funny too. Uh, and uh, Dan North's track on resiliency, which is a, certainly a topic near and dear to my heart, but I don't think a lot of folks think about their systems as resilient. I definitely believe that's true. Uh, from sort of our early training as programmers, we learn that things either work or they don't work. And we don't really have this notion of partially working or sort of working or working in the face of uh, harsh conditions and partial failures. Uh, and so we, we run something until it doesn't seem to work anymore, and then we terminate it and start a new process or reboot the machine. But our production systems aren't really allowed that luxury anymore. So we have to build them to work in all kinds of conditions. Well, one would also argue that real systems never opt operate in the optimal state that they were sort of tested at, too. You know, they may not be quote-unquote failing, but they're almost invariably slower than what you were hoping they would be. Oh, absolutely. I, I actually argue that having everything working is sort of the exceptional state. And the normal state is, you know, there are some, some quirks and oddities somewhere in your system. So can we define resiliency then? Is it really that I keep working in spite of these bits and pieces that are busted? That's, that's a reasonable place to start. Um, I think of it sort of in terms of uh, materials and, and the way that materials in the real world behave. You know, if you stretch a piece of metal, um, you put stress on it, it will uh, uh, stretch or strain uh, sort of proportionally to how much you pull on it. Um, and when you let go, it goes back to its original shape. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, one characteristic of resilience is when you take away the stressors, uh, things return to normal. Um, now, also like materials, you reach a point where the metal doesn't, just uh, stretch linearly. It sort of fails all at once and comes apart into pieces. Uh, that's when you've uh, exceeded the uh, elasticity of the, the metal. And our systems do that too. So there's, there's really no such thing as perfect resilience. 
you can always find a way to take a system uh, down uh, if you push it hard enough or in enough different directions. Now, I've rarely called a system resilient, but I have often called a system brittle, which I would say <laughs> is sort of the opposite. Wouldn't you, would you agree that be a system being brittle is, is not, it's the opposite of being resilient? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a brittle system, uh, we don't have any formal definitions of it, but uh, we generally think of a system that uh, works only if you treat it right, right, uh, or tips over easily, or maybe handles load up to a certain number of users. But when you add one more user, uh, it goes down. Uh, we think of those as being brittle because you provide a shock to the system and it just comes apart completely. Yeah, the, and the whole thing unravels. That, that right. breaking this one little piece. Uh, I I tell a story of a system that we were using for. Uh, for uh, currency trading and it had a back channel because because current currency quotes were so important they had a separate internet connection just to get the currency quotes but it didn't have the same level of redundancy as the whole front end system had and so there was what we were one modem away from the system being completely irrelevant you know it's amazing how often uh that type of thing creeps into systems um i i've seen all kinds of situations like that where you had uh, surprising coupling. Uh, one example that I, I like to talk about was um, a commerce system that had backend connections to a bunch of third-party service providers. The backend connection was uh, basically VPN tunneled through the corporate network and uh, out through the, the main routers that handled all of the company's internal traffic. And so one day when a virus was rampaging around the corporate network from desktop to desktop, uh, it slowed down the network enough that backend connections for the commerce site were failing. Right. And so you had a situation where, you know, the, the site had been built as ostensibly an isolated environment, and yet it had this hidden dependency that caused us to couple the availability of the commerce site to the availability of desktop machines under a virus attack. <laughs> Not something any architect would have designed into the system. No, it's clearly not part of the plan, but often, often it is part of reality. Right. And so, you know, the, the resilient approach to that would be um, instead of saying, well, if I can't get a connection to my uh, tax calculation service, um, I throw a stack trace at my user. Uh, I would say instead, I'm going to put a timeout around that connection. And if it times out often enough, I'm going to just stop asking for a little while and let things cool down on the back end. And I have to make a business decision then about what I do with orders when I can't reach that authorization system or right. the tax system. Do I go ahead and accept the order and just do some manual processing with it later? Um, or is the risk of losing money when I do that so high that I should reject the order, but do it in a friendly way that causes someone to come back instead of vomiting a stack trace on them or, or worse, simply failing to respond with a page at all. Right. Well, how often do we get an error message back that has nothing to do with the actual failure? Like, you know, and credit cards are a great example of that, where the, the failure is a decline. Right. It's not because the cards over limit or stolen or anything like that. It's like, I couldn't contact the back end system. So sorry, declined. And you've now alienated a customer because of a technical failure and a bad error message. Well, it's true. And uh, it gets worse than that because if you look at the common behavior inside the application, 
if you try to reach that auth system and you can't, most likely you have a retry loop that just goes and does it again. Right. Uh, so precisely when the backend system isn't working, maybe because it's overloaded, uh, you're multiplying the load by a factor of three or a factor of five. So you're harming the backend system and you're making the user wait even longer to give them the false message that their card is no good. <laughs> well, and that's given that you wrote any error handling at all. You know, in some ways, doing nothing and just failing quickly and cleanly on the first problem is better than these bad recovery models, where it now you just took longer to still fail. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the airline community talks about let it crash. Uh, even if you're not in a runtime where you can let it crash, you can usually detect uh, whether you're going to be able to do a, a service or not. Uh, and so I, I talk a lot about fail fast mm -hmm. and ways of detecting whether you can fail fast before you make the user wait. Um, so, for example, checking the state of circuit breakers in your system. You know, if you if you know that you're just not doing any calls to a backend service right now, and you know that that service is 100% required, well, there's no point in proceeding until you actually make the call. You might as well stop now. Right. So, yeah, why are we making the user do our testing of our infrastructure for us? Why isn't there something out there? So that by the time the guy gets to the credit card screen, it's already aware of fact that that system is not responding. Yeah, we, we can absolutely build that awareness in. Mm-hmm. But I, I think more and more as we're as, as the DevOps word gets bandied about, an, an aspect of this is resiliency. This idea that we start dashboarding and and deep testing each of our features on a routine basis so that we can green light and red light them, which is nice for an ops guy just to have a view into, hey, that's down. But I love the fact that the developer can pick that back up again and change the behavior of the software to make it a little friendlier. I often say that if you just put something on a graph, people will start acting to make that line go up and to the right. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't no matter, matter what it is. No matter what it is. Um, yeah, you don't have to tie it to incentives or anything. You just you know measure it and people will look at it and go, oh, yuck, uh, I, can, I can do better. So developers are definitely getting more involved. And actually, one of the interesting things about DevOps is uh, it is increasing the frequency of deployments and of partial deployments. And if you look at it uh, sort of squinting your eyes a little bit, a deployment of a service you depend on uh, looks a lot like an outage for a service you depend on. And so if you start <laughs> to regard that as a normal activity, uh, then just building so that you can continuously deploy the backend thing makes your front end more resilient. Right. No, I love that. It, yeah, there's really no difference between an update and an outage. It's still out. That's right. That's what actually matters. Well, we t you know, I do when I do talks about reliability and ultimately about resiliency, you talk about these three different things of contending with failure and and uh, being able to scale linearly, being able to keep adding resources and updating seamlessly so that the new feature just appears. It doesn't take the system out in the process. Mm -hmm. And I think that it comes back to this attitude of no outages. Yeah. In fact, um, I, I do like to build toward zero downtime deployments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know all the standard objections about, you know, web resources and protocol versions and database uh, schemas. Uh, and I've never yet found uh, a release that could not be structured for zero downtime. Right. But sometimes you design things differently, knowing that you're going to roll it out in small pieces. 
you know, so you don't just produce uh, uh, one SQL script that changes you all the way to the new schema. You produce two or three that let you take it in bite-sized pieces with code changes uh, interleaved. Um, but, you know, if we're already uh, supposing that we can do deployment continuously and cheaply, then splitting up your change that way is pretty easy. Yeah, absolutely. And and you get into this idea of integrating first, that we roll out these pieces. I might add, in, uh, I think, especially in the data world, we still have a very big bang mentality that you make all the changes all at once, and then all the software is going to update all at once and everything will be fine. This idea that I would add a column, but put no constraints around it initially, because the software is going to transition over time. And not until the right. transition is completed, do we actually now start saying, okay, now that column is required. You know, and, and move through those phases gradually. I think it's it's a really interesting way to think uh, that I don't right. think software people have a big problem with, but I think ops people struggle more. You know, it's it's interesting. I go to the ops conferences like Velocity, uh, and I hear them saying, uh, "Well, I shouldn't say them." I hear us at that group saying, uh, "You know, we're on board with this, but." devs have a hard time adjusting to the new reality. <laughs> and then I go to development conferences and I hear the, the exact same message. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, we need to get these people together. Yeah, you guys need to go for a beer. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I find ops people are actually pretty comfortable with the idea of uh, incremental changes. I will say I've had some trouble with DBAs mm. um, because uh, you know, DBAs are, are taught from an early stage to do proper design by normalizing the schema, um, factoring it out correctly, uh, designing for the right kinds of usage patterns. And if you don't know what the usage patterns will be, how can you design for it? Uh, so that's that's definitely one class of problem. Absolutely. Yeah. But then there's also the safety question. So I'll, I'll give you a concrete example that burned us one time. Uh, we had a MySQL database, and uh, we were using InnoDB, the, the proper transactional storage engine for MySQL. Uh, but someone added a bunch of tables that uh, were ISAM tables, oh. which has no transactionality at all. Uh, and so we, we suddenly had this mix of things in there. Well, one response uh, would have been, from now on, developers don't get to create tables. Everything goes through the DBAs. And that would be a sort of a uh, traditional response to that problem. Right. Uh, a more up-to-date DevOps approach would be to say, well, uh, we should actually introduce some automated linting that will check our database changes to make sure we're not doing something dumb or, or contra the architecture. Uh, and you, then you go, well, it turns out SQL as a language is, is really hard to parse and it's hard to interpret. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of beyond our skill set to, um, to build this linter. And then the, the real sort of DevOps flexibility kicks in. And instead of saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll go back and have the DBAs check it. You respond instead by saying, if SQL makes it hard to be fast, automated, and do things continuously, then the answer is to stop using SQL. <laughs> and we will express our changes in something else, right. YAML or source code or something like that, which we can process and check. 
And that's an interesting transformation. It's, it's akin to the things you see in a lean manufacturing setting where people don't accept the constraints of the tooling right. they're given. They actually change the tools to make them work better with the way you want to work. Well, and I don't necessarily buy into the fact that SQL can comply with this. I think you have to think about SQL differently. But you clearly are seeing, as DBAs are resisting, uh, developers are finding other ways to store data. And, and it's turning out that these other ways to store data not only are remarkably uh, capable of working in these iterative models, they're also quite resilient. They are. Uh, some of them because they were built to be cloud native. Some of them because they're, they're just built under a, you know, 2000s era set of assumptions rather than a 1970s era of assumptions. <laughs> it's interesting to look at the NoSQL movement and ask how much of it is about uh, really about scalability to you know Facebook scale, and how much of it is actually a no DBA movement? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a fair question, and and you know they're not the only ones that were threatened this way. We you know the cloud also opened the door to we don't need to use our IT. You know there was that same sort of threat essentially that uh, there are other ways to solve this problem. I can outsource it by the hour. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I and I do I I have been working with these DBAs who really understand what SQL is good at, which also speaks to another truth that I think the NoSQL movement is hitting on, which was we were abusing relational databases for years. We had this mindset that we stuck everything into a SQL oriented database, whether it was relational data or not. Yeah, I think um, attempting to map objects into SQL databases was always kind of a fool's errand. Um, and the the tools we came up with to do it were really uh, adapters for an unnatural act uh, at the bottom because what we abandoned was all the set semantics and actual relational algebra. Right. And so if you're just doing, you know, um, uh, object ID traversal through a, a graph of objects that you happen to have flattened out into tables – you're sort of getting all the problems of mapping into SQL and none of the advantages. Yes. And you're making the customer wait while you do it. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah. If we've, we've, we've gone through over on the other show on the, on .NET rock side of the world, we have gone through a few times with, uh, with different developers and architects, this idea that I take my object and I stash it in an object store and let the customer go on their merry way. And then asynchronously to that, and maybe that's only a few hundred milliseconds later, I decompose that object into relational store for the analytics that the relational database is actually good at. Yes, um, but the the schema and format you translated into might not be the one that's ideal for OLTP. Right. Uh, you're, you're putting it into something that's better for analytics and reporting. Well, and that's the thing that I find fascinating when you get into this space is that uh, as soon as you start getting serious about OLTP, you start thinking, wow, relational databases kind of suck at OLTP. That's <laughs> And that's not what they were meant for anyway. You know, COD wasn't talking about transactional velocity he had that already he was talking about being able to relate data together in different ways so i i work for a company that does produce a database so you know full full disclaimer required there of course um uh, but one of the things that we've observed it's often the case that the schema you need to present 
the framework of your application and, and sort of the, the read side of information that you display is different than the schema that's optimal for capturing the transactions. And so we've seen people doing things like uh, CQRS or uh, event-oriented or event stream databases, mm-hmm. uh, which are a pretty direct recognition of that idea that, you know, I've, I've really got read, which is done best from you know, large table structures and things with schemas. And then I've got uh, act or transact, which is command-oriented by its nature. Um, and it's possible for the merging of that command back into the main uh, data store to be a little ways behind the application, uh, that there are many domains and use cases where that's okay. And, uh, you know, tying this back to resilience, that also gives you a more resilient system because you've now decoupled read availability from write availability. And you might even use different data stores for each of those. So you could say, when my system is partially broken, at least I'm still online and presenting a site, even if you can't uh, transact or engage with me or sign up for a policy or, or whatever it is that you do. Um, at least I'm still visible. You know, these sound, but these sounds much more like business this conversations. It's what are our gradations of failure? At what point are we better off with the site down than, than partially up? Well, yeah, I mean, they certainly are business conversations, but they're not conversations that uh, business analysts tend to start. Um, and they're not conversations that the business sponsors will tend to initiate because their expectation is everything works all the time. Right. Well, and how many times when you try and have this conversation, does the senior person in the room go, no, we can't be down? Right. Ever. Yep. It happens. Um, and, you know, as, as an engineer, you kind of say, well, look, everything breaks. Eventually, yep. you know, protons are going to decay into... Uh, uh, photons. So at some point, you're going to be down. Yeah, entropy you know? wins. The sun is going to engulf the Earth in about <laughs> four billion years. The way, the way I would describe that scenario is you come to work and there's a smoking hole in the ground where the office used to be. Right, and and some places actually do business continuity drills, uh, not just with IT, but they you know they go around and um, uh, point at people and go, okay, you're sick, you're sick, you're sick, you're dead. Go home. Don't answer anything from anybody. And they see if they can keep running. Yeah, see what doesn't get done. You can relate it back to that. Um, or you can just relate it to costs and say, okay, well, look, I can build you a system that will never, ever go down. I'm going to need 12 data centers around the continent and a satellite in orbit. Um, there's going to be some cost to that. And then they go, oh, well, that, yeah, I guess I can't really pay that much. Yeah. no, it, it, I, I didn't even have to get to that big of a number. You know, but yeah, I just start there so we don't have to. (laughs) We start with satellites. I love it, (laughs) (laughs) and it just ends that conversation. What is the reasonable threshold? At the you know, does does the website still need to be up if civilization has collapsed? Right. Um, There's a a great scene in uh, Gremlins Two where the smart building is shutting down, and it says, "We hope you have enjoyed civilization." Um, more seriously, I do put it in terms of, uh, expected losses per year. Uh, and so I say, you know, if you want five nines of availability on read and transact and search and all of your features, uh, here's what it's going to cost. Usually it's a pretty big number. 
Um, and you don't have to get too precise. You can, you know, uh, use some rules of thumb to get there pretty quickly. Uh, and then you say your cost of downtime is a million dollars an hour. Uh, five nines means you get three minutes of downtime. And so you're spending $12 million a year uh, to offset losses that look like, you know, uh, uh, $50,000 per year. Right. And if you go down to four nines or down to three nines even, which I, I find is adequate for most commercial systems, mm-hmm. you go down to three nines, here's the additional loss you should expect from downtime. But here's the cost savings that you'll achieve. Nice. And the cost savings are usually way more than the increased losses. And so you treat it as an optimization problem that way. And you say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to manage risk by applying technology. And I just need to make those numbers balanced so that we have a profitable business. And I think when we own the ROI that way, when we know what our systems make for the company, what they cost the company, and we could start playing with those deltas, A, we have a much more productive conversation with management. And, it, and I actually feel like we're working on the right things. Although I'm um, finding ops people are more willing to own those numbers because they tend to spend more on gear and care about operating costs than developers do. It's, it's one of the ways I've found in the ops role to come to developers and say, here's how much more money we can make the company if we do things this way. That's an interesting observation. I, I think you're right. I don't know why that is. Um, but I, I do think you're right that ops tends to own ROI more. Right. But ultimately, we need both groups of people if we're really going to maximize the ROI potential of an organization. So I, I, I think it's a talking point. Everybody wants the DevOps, but they have no idea how to get it started. And uh, when I'm talking to the ops guys, one of the angles here is, you know, bring numbers to the table. Developers like numbers. Fair point. I, I think that's a good way to look at it. Now, the, the resiliency angle on this interests me because, you know, it's always this idea that you can dent, you know, bend the metal a little bit. And arguably, it's always bent a bit. It's just a question of how well it actually bounces back uh, and what recoveries look like. Uh, and, and how automated that is. I'm, and where I'm getting to is most of the time when I've been working in organizations that have hot failover solutions, they, the hot failover is kind of frightening. Like when it actually happens, when it, when a web, when a web server or a database announces, we failed over. Just thought you should know. <laughs> most of the people don't know where that happened, but it's, it's, even though the system's done what it's supposed to and it's still up, we're all frightened. And I'm just wondering how we make that a little less dramatic, that people are more confident with that, they're more comfortable with it, they see things coming. Like, is there an idea that we can see the smaller dents and not when we get to something as big as that? You know, in the Agile community, there's been a maxim for a while that says, if something is painful, you should do it more often. Right. Uh, not just because you build up calluses, but uh, as you do it more often, you'll find ways to make it better and less painful. Uh, so yeah, you're incentivized to make the pain go away, not by not doing it, but by making it less painful. Right. And and so for example, I have a system in production now or actually staging, but in a production like environment soon to be in production, um, where we have a, we have a box that serializes all of our transactions. Um, we need strong consistency. And so we're willing to give up, uh, unlimited scaling for the strong consistency, the standard way of dealing with this box is to kill it. 
uh, we're running in an auto-scaling group. We can either have uh, a min of zero uh, and a, a preferred of one, meaning when we kill a box, a new one will be started. It's five to ten minute delay on getting that up and running. Right. Or we can have a min of two, or sorry, a min of one and a preferred of two, which means as soon as we kill the primary, the secondary takes over. Uh, and then uh, auto-scaling brings up a new box, which will become the new secondary. Right. So we fail over, but we never fail back. Nice. Um, I actually think fail back is way scarier than fail over. I, to- I totally agree. Yeah. Um, and so we have this model that says, uh, just kill it. In fact, if the primary ever detects that it has uh, uh, lost the heartbeat race, uh, it will suicide itself. <laughs> I'm out of here. Thanks for playing. Yeah, uh, because we never want to deal with a situation where it used to be primary, then wasn't, then was again. Yeah. So the state machine becomes a lot easier. A lot simpler. Well, and and same way that we talk about, we don't like rollbacks, we like roll forwards. Right. It's the same mindset of, yeah, never, you're never trying to get back to a state. You're always trying to get to the new state. Right. And if you think about the number of times you do it, you know, you'll, you'll roll forward many, many, many times. Sure. And so you get very good at that and you, yeah. you get good tools for doing it and you roll back, you know, once every couple of years by hand. Yeah. And which means it's never going to go well, really. But I, and I like this idea, no. this is almost like a resiliency of process that we eliminate the processes that we, that aren't reliable and only focus on the ones that are and make sure it covers all of the things we need to do. That's a good way to put it. I, I think so. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's really interesting. The resili- yeah, resiliency is a broader concept here than just how well our websites run. Mm-hmm. Michael, it's really fun to talk to you. This is not that different than our breakfast just a couple of months ago. Well, we haven't digressed into uh, nuclear reactors and national policy. That but, is true. Uh, may- maybe we'll do that on a future podcast. <laughs> yeah, might be a different podcast, but that's entirely possible. Michael, thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, It's been my pleasure. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm